Turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. If you don't know where Habakkuk is in the Bible, um, neither do I. I stuck a post-it note where it goes, and I turned there automatically. Because just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you know where all the books are. If you hit Malachi, you've gone too far. Habakkuk is between Nahum and Zephaniah. Like, that helps. So, <laughs> um, Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophets. So, a couple weeks ago, we see this man named Habakkuk. A great name, by the way. Um, he comes to the Lord with a question. And it's not a question that's exclusively for a specific time. It's actually a question that transcends every generation that's ever existed. From the beginning till now, this question still remains. Why do bad things happen to good people? Last year we did a, a sermon series called Ask Your Pastor. I asked you to submit questions. One of the very first questions I got was, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a good question. It's a hard question. It's not easy. We walked away from that, not with an answer, because God hadn't yet answered them in the verses that we studied, but we walked away from that saying, uh, and me challenging you, are you asking God the hard questions of your life? Sometimes religion gets in the way and says, well, well, I got to have faith. I can't ask God questions. It's a sign of lack of faith if I'm questioning him. Or maybe uh, you have a problem with uh, good authority to where you feel as though if someone is an authority over you, like God, for instance, um, it is uh, wrong of you to even question anything. Maybe uh, you don't look to God for these hard questions. You see God um, kind of as uh, an, an accent to life rather than life itself. And for whatever reason, we might not be asking these hard questions, but we absolutely should be asking these questions. For Habakkuk, it was standing back watching good people die, and not only that, or suffer, or go through hard times, but not only that, watching the evil prosper. In that, we see some of Habakkuk's problem. He saw himself outside of the scenario. Either he saw himself as one of the good people, as we most often do, or he saw himself as an impartial player to both sides, as if there was a third side. There really only is one side, or excuse me, two sides. You're either good or you're bad. You're good or you're evil. You're, you're, and to put it in the, the biblical terms, you're either saved or you are not. You're either a child of God or you are not. And for Habakkuk, he kind of looked, I don't want to say looked down upon the people, but he didn't see himself as a participant. You contrast that with... Um, uh, a man like Nehemiah, he has a book uh, in the Old Testament as well, continuously through his book he would repent. But not just for him. I mean he was trying to rebuild Jerusalem. He wanted to go back and reestablish God's presence. And he would then stop and say, Lord, I repent not just for me but for the nation of Israel. He saw himself as part of the problem even though he himself was not guilty of what he saw other people doing. He said, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, we are all part of the same family, and I want to repent for myself and for them. And you see that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, men who repent not just for themselves, but they pray for repentance for others as well. They don't see themselves as high and above everybody else. They see the, the playing field before God level, and we're all damned to hell without the intervention of God. The second question we dealt with, or excuse me, the second sermon was dealing with um, God's answer. And God's answer was not a, 
you know, bad things happen to good people because it was even if I told you what was going on right now, you would not understand. There are things that God will tell us that will just bring more questions. If you want to know what that looks like in a small, minuscule uh, way, um, let a child ask you a question about something. Like, why is the sky blue? You can give them the exact answer. Do they walk away satisfied? No. It leads to 10 more questions. Well, why is it that way? Why? 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 Because in their minds that are smaller than ours and haven't learned as much as us, there's more questions. Just knowing exactly what why this is isn't necessarily satisfying that need for more knowledge. And, and there's stuff we're telling them. If we tell it in our adult words, they just go, I don't know what any of that is. I got more questions. What does that mean? What is photosynthesis? Sorry, I my tongue just fell out. Photosynthesis. You know, what is osmosis? What is what is why are there clouds? Why does it rain? It just leads to more questions and more questions and more questions. With God, it's much the same. God could give us a a, a verbatim answer as to why things happen a specific way, and we would ask more questions. Why? Because God is bigger than us. He's stronger, wiser, smarter. Everything more than us. We are the creation. He is the creator. And so, yeah, we're going to ask him questions. What about this? What about that? And God just says, you know, it's just too much for you right now. That was the question when I was – or that was the answer when I was a kid that with, with my mom, it just, it just infuriated me. I asked her a question. Well, I'll tell you when you're older. No, tell me now. I want to know now. Why can't I know now? Now that I'm older, like, oh, my head would have exploded if you told me that. I don't need to know that then. I'm, I'm glad I know that now as an adult rather than as a child. So Habakkuk asks God a really hard question. God answers by saying, I'm bringing in the Chaldeans. See, what had happened was the Israelites, they had sinned against God. They didn't just sin. They rebelled. They, they defiantly stood up against God and then tried to look religious. They would say, you know what? God has told them to only worship Jehovah God, and they said, well, we're going to bring in, we're going to worship Baal, Asherah, all these different false gods, but we're going to mingle it in with the worship of God, so, you know, everybody gets their place in time. And God was like, no, I told you to worship me and me alone. And they're like, yeah, but we're still really religious and spiritual, and God's like, no, you're just really rebellious, and here's how I'm going to discipline you. He's not forsaking them, he's not leaving them, he's disciplining them, and he uses a group of people called the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians were people who saw religion as an accent to life. But there was a, there was a limit as to how much uh, religion played in their life, to, to how far it went. At some point they'd say, no, okay, that's all well and good for potlucks on Sunday, but we have to count on ourselves. You know, it's going to be our strength and our might that gets anything done. They were super smart. They were super strong. They, they advanced in all kinds of things, but... God was a distant, you know, not even second or third. He was way down the list. And when life really got hard, instead of fleeing to him, they just took matters into their own hands. And so if that's you, if, if God is second, if Jesus is sort of just a, a, an accessory to your life, you're probably not living the life you really enjoy or love. This leads Habakkuk to another question. Now, he only asks two questions or two main questions. But at the end of this question, we find 
the title of our sermon today, Resolve. So Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Real quick, before I go forward, if you're going to approach God with a question, now God's a big God. If you come in shaking your fists and throwing a tantrum and being loud and yelling and swearing and cursing, God's not offended and doesn't run away any more than you are if your child was to do the same thing to you. Um, if your child comes to you and throws a tantrum and then you run away crying, I've got bad news for you. They're in charge and you are not. Okay? But if you stand looking at them and asking them, how's that going? And are you having fun down there? And can we move on with our life? You can't do that. That is wrong. Let's go have some discipline. If that's more of your, your MO, um, then you kind of know what's going on when it comes to this. And the best thing you can do rather than throwing that tantrum before God is do like Habakkuk and come and worship. God, I know that you're God. I know that you're holy. I know that I know that what the Bible says about you is true, Jesus. You are so much more than I can even fathom in my own little finite mind. And I still have these questions. I guarantee you, coming in, a, in, a, in an attitude of worship will change the whole dynamic of your prayer. It will change the whole dynamic of your conversation with God. Because God does not have to deal with a rebellious heart. He simply needs to answer questions or he simply needs to comfort you. But if you come in rebellious, he has to deal with that too. He has to deal with that as well. Verse 13 says, You are you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk uses a fishing metaphor. Okay? And so he uses the idea of, of the unrighteous being like a fisherman, and the things that he does to, to gain and to get ahead are like the nets, and he catches up innocent victims, those are the fish, and clubs them to death so that he might gain. And Habakkuk just asked the same question, where are you in all of this? But here's the, here's the part, we're going to continue just a little bit. Here's the part I want us to focus on today. It's chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. I only have three points for you today. Number one, life is hard. Number two, Jesus is good. And number three, resolve. Very basic, very simple. This is not a long, drawn-out Greek, Hebrew verbs and nouns and all this and backstory and everything else it's it's just plain and simple first point life is hard show of hands is life hard life is hard and i'm putting that mildly like i could get really i could use a lot of colorful words for life but life in general can be very very hard um just knowing some of you and the circumstances you're in, some of the things you've shared and haven't shared, some of the folks who aren't here today because life is hard, and there's just a lot that we can go through. 
There are times where we go through things and before it's even done, something else arises. And, and then you get to a point where, and I don't know if any of you have gotten here, but it gets to a point where you just start living with it. Um, to use a metaphor and an analogy, when I was 16, I got my first job. I worked as a dishwasher in a retirement home. It was amazing. The people were great, and they let you eat all you want. Dream job. Plus, they paid you for it. Um, I got, and please, I hope this is not too much for anybody, but I got an ingrown toenail. I had to wear big boots with steel toes because of the dishes. They were huge metal pans, and, you know, it was protocol. You had to wear those. It was just, it hurt, right? And I don't know if you've ever had one of those, but they're they're obnoxious. But I was also stubborn and decided not to go to the doctor and take care of it. Well, I can take care of it. Well, eventually it gets infected. And, but at a point, at some point in there, I decided, hey, I'll just live with it. And I'll just walk with this slight limp because it hurts. People ask, oh, it's just my foot. I'm taking care of it, which meant don't ask me any more questions. Um, but then it got infected, and then I had to go to the doctor and take care of it. And that's just a, that's just a toenail. It's not a big deal, right? But some of us, we do that with our life circumstances. We fight. We yell, we scream, we try new things, that doesn't work out, and then we just decide, I guess this is what life is like. I guess I'll just live with this for the rest of my life. And church, you might. I'm here to tell you today that you might live with whatever problems in your life today forever. You can pray for it. God can be merciful. God may take it from your life. More, most likely, God will make you stronger so that you can overcome those circumstances. But I think of Paul, I believe it's in Second Corinthians, where he said he had this thorn in his side where he prayed to God three times that the Lord would remove it. And God just simply said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't say, I'm going to remove the thorn. He doesn't say, oh, you know, rebuke it. He doesn't say, oh, you know, it's not really there. You know, he doesn't say not to claim it. He doesn't say that, you know, bury your head in the sand. He just says, yeah, I know it's there. And my grace for you is greater than that thing, whatever it is. And that might be you. But see, that leads to point number three after skipping over point number two, which is actually a really important point, is resolve. The idea, the decision that no matter what, no matter what life can throw at me, no matter what my children can do, no matter what my wife can do, my husband can do, the economy can do, the president can do, the world can do to me, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. I have chosen to live for him. I do not care what my body tells me. I do not care what my mind tells me. I don't care what my emotions tell me. I'm not telling you to run away. I'm not telling you to hide from your problems. What I'm saying is, is that at some point, you have to make a decision that Jesus is who he claims to be and live according to that. We cannot live a Jesus but life. I know Jesus is good, but everything else is bad. You're, it's the equivalent of saying Jesus is not who he claims to be. It's the equivalent of saying I... I don't really live for him. I don't see past my circumstances to the greater goal or the greater good, which is Jesus. I'm not here to preach to you some 10-step program or method to get to Jesus or to get to a solution to your problems. Jesus is your solution today. Jesus is everything you need. And for some of you, you're, you're thinking, I don't even know what that means. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible talks about how before we know Jesus, we're dead. And I've seen only a few dead people my whole life. They don't move. They don't live. They don't breathe. And that is how we are considered apart from Jesus. Dead. But then the Holy Spirit awakens us. The Holy Spirit gets a hold of us and opens our eyes and we see Jesus. We, we, see, ourself, we see ourselves as dead. Oh my gosh, I'm dead in sin. I'm dead in, in what I've done. I'm, I'm, I've done things that I should not have done. And people have done things to me that, that they haven't, should not have done to me as well. And I need to be saved. It's an act of God. It's like God's defibrillator. He just puts it, the Holy Spirit on you. You wake up. You see Jesus. And you give your life to him. I can't, I, can't, I can't manufacture that. I can preach to you sermons. I can read you, give you Bible studies, verses to put on your t-shirts. But I can't manufacture that. I can't manufacture the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, Spirit in your life. And for some of you, you've had that moment and you've lived decades for Jesus. And, for, and you've, you've made that decision. You have that resolve. And today you're here to just be encouraged and strengthened and to help others in the week to come. Some of you, you're just in the middle somewhere. You know Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And you know things can go a certain way, but they're seemingly only going bad. And you just need to know what's going on. And then there's some of you who just not have, you're still dead. And so for all of you today, the, 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 the common denominator is Jesus. Life is hard, but Jesus is good. John 10 and 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. If you read through chapter, uh, chapter 10, one of, the, one of my favorite chapters of all the Bible, especially the Gospels, Jesus goes to great lengths to explain how he is the good shepherd, that he's the door to which the sheep enter into his fold. He's not only the good shepherd, but he's the door that gets them into the pasture that is his that we don't enter in on our own that we don't uh, even protect ourselves that we are like sheep that we aren't we don't have a great self-defense mechanism we can't help ourselves we just simply cry out and God rescues us Jesus says I am the good shepherd I'm not the hired hand I'm not the bad shepherd I'm the good shepherd Matthew 11:28 says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus and the Bible do not offer us steps and solutions, and he offers us himself. Imagine husbands going to your wife and saying, I need dinner, and they hand you a recipe you would still be hungry, right? I mean, unless you're a really good cook, like Mike or something. You'd probably be like, yeah, I can do this. But for the most part, you'd be, this isn't what I asked for. But if a wife were to say, here I am, let me cook a meal for you. Ah, that'd be awesome. There are a few things I love in this life more than when my wife cooks for me. It's awesome. And vice versa. God doesn't come to us and say, yeah, you need me. Here's a, here's a, Here's a little cheat sheet to help you get along in life until we meet, you know, then. He offers us himself. 
He offers us daily, real-life, real-time relationship with Him, walking and talking and breathing with the living God. That through the cross of Jesus Christ, that we can be redeemed and saved from our sins and those sins that have been done against us. That we can be made clean. That the blood of Jesus actually washes away the stains of our sin. The stains that we try to wash away with our good works and by giving and by doing all this other business, but Jesus says, no, no, those stains... They get washed out by my sacrifice. For those who are now Christians, we're not better than anybody else. We've just been cleaned by the one who is better than everybody else. We've been saved and forgiven by Jesus. But this needs to lead to resolve. You can know that God is good all day long. You can know that Jesus loves you all day long. But if you have no resolve, your life will be fragile. Your life will be a like falling backwards downhill on a bumpy rocky cactus filled mountain you're like god loves me but life is hard and i don't like it and this is i can't stop and for some of you life has been like that since i mean maybe for some of you even got worse when you became a christian because now you can't swear about stuff like at least before you were a christian and you hurt yourself at least you could swear but now you can. Now you can't even do that. Like, oh, or maybe before when things went bad, you'd go and just drink till you were nuts. But you can't even do that anymore. So you know, just life got harder. I have to feel everything. Are you kidding me? But that leads to resolve. I want to give you two instances of resolve in the New Testament. One is from a man named Thomas. What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Of all the nicknames of the Bible, I, there's Judas. And he doesn't even need a nickname. Just call him Judas, and we know exactly what we're talking about. Betrayer. This is a great name for a heavy metal band. And then there's Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Well, I won't believe until this. He's doubting Thomas. He kind of gets a bad rap. I mean, yes, he, he doubts, but it's he kind of has to live under... I mean, I imagine him in heaven now. I wonder if people like rib his, you know, elbow his ribs and go, Hey, doubter. He's like, oh, come on, guys. That was eternity ago. That's a joke. He still, to this day, we will forever call him Doubting Thomas. But in John chapter 11, Jesus has to go to see his friend Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. Died. Got sick, died. He's going to go back to Lazarus' house, which is really close to where the Pharisees and the, and the, and the um, religious uh, elites and the religious, religiously powerful are. The guys who basically want to kill Jesus are there, and Jesus has to go back there. And his disciples are like, wait a second, Lazarus is already dead. Why are we going back to the place where you could die too? And Jesus is just like, I gotta go. You know, come with me or don't, whatever. This is what Thomas says. So, so Thomas called the twin, or Didymus, as some of your translations say, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas said, okay, if we're going back and Jesus is going to die, let's just go die with him. That's resolve. That's saying, well, if this is the road that's before us, we're going to take it. We're going to go. We're going to die. So be it. We'll die with Jesus. See, I don't know how come he didn't get this reputation. He just gets the Doubting Thomas reputation. But here, resolve. I, Jesus is going back. If, he's, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Let's go. The second instance is found in the book of Acts, chapter 21. A man by the name of Paul 
is going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to preach. This man has already been through tremendous things, been imprisoned and been beaten and been flogged and been hated and been, you know, if there was a Facebook or a Twitter of that time, he'd have been just up and down, back and forth, blacklisted completely. Um, but Paul nonetheless was going to go. And then, then there is this word from the Lord. The Holy Spirit takes a man, gives that man a message to share with Paul. Something that happens as much today as it did then. This message comes to this man. This man comes to Paul, and this is what he says. It says in verse 11, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Very dramatic. Takes his belt, wraps it around his hands like, like a reverse Houdini, wraps it around his hands and feet. To see this belt, whoever owns this belt, same thing is going to happen to the, whoever goes to Jerusalem. Meaning, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, this is you. And most of you, myself included, would hear that and probably say, hmm, am I really supposed to go to Jerusalem? Some of you have been told that if something bad happens, obviously the Lord's not involved. Here's the Lord telling Paul, if you go, this is what will happen to you. I don't know about you. It's hard to convince me that being bound and tied up and put in jail as being a good thing. I've seen a few prison movies, and I know they embellish a little, but they don't seem very fun. I don't want to go, and I can imagine that Paul didn't want to go either. It says in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. One plus one makes two. You're going to get in prison. You're going to get in trouble. Don't go. Just makes sense. Obviously, the Lord is warning you not to go. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Two instances there. First, Paul's resolve, hey man, I got a job to do. And if this is how it's going to turn out, this is how it turns out. And the people finally saying, let the will of the Lord be done. Sometimes sometimes we pray against the will of God. God wants one thing, we want another thing, and we just kind of, we hold out till we get what we want, and it generally doesn't happen that way. Some of you have been taught to get locked into this battle with God until he kind of, you know, till you get him in an arm bar, and you, and you push him to the ground, and he does what you have to say. Some of you have been taught that. It's not taught like that. It's given very spiritual and religious names. But nonetheless, you're taught to overthrow God to get what you want. And it doesn't really work that way. If God has ordained something for you to ha for something to happen in your life, that's how it's going to happen, and we have a choice to make. Do we live life that glorifies Jesus, suffering well? Or do we live life throwing tantrums and being spiritual four-year-olds? We have a choice to make. These circumstances are going to happen regardless. The landscape of your life is going to be just marked with this triumph, this trial, this tragedy, this victory. I mean, you're going to just have all kinds of things happen in your life. Your kids are going to have something go really great, and then they're going to break your heart. 
unless you're magic. Uh, people are going to disappoint you. The economy is going to collapse. 401ks are not going to be everything that we thought they were. Some elected politician who made a lot of promises is going to not follow through with them. And if you get caught up in that one, that's your own fault. And and just it's, that's life. That's been life for as many years as life has existed. No one has found a way to avoid all of those things. And if they have... They're lying and using psychotropic drugs to get through those things, and they just don't know that they're happening. My point is this. You have a choice to make. Imagine yourself standing before your life. Are you going to walk through it, or are you going to be dragged through it? Are you going to not be confident in how you can get through it, but confident in the Lord that you walk with? Okay, God, let's do this. If, if, this is, if this is my life right here, then help me to walk it and walk it well. Help me to, to keep my head up, not out of pride, not out of arrogance, but because I have you. Jesus has done all things for us that no matter what could happen in this life, it cannot take us away from him. And... There is God's part in this where he, he sort of gives you spiritual steel in your back to stand up and, and to be defiant against your circumstances and against Satan who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But then there's your part as well to, to, to make that decision for you. I can't, I can't make that decision for you, nor would I want to. That's your choice. God has presented all the evidence that he needs to for you to make that wise choice. To say, this is, this is life, this is what I'm going through, but I will have the resolve, the same resolve that Habakkuk has. Habakkuk hasn't even gotten an answer yet. He says, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm just going to wait. I'm going to stand at the watchtower. I'm going to go back to my job. I'm going to go back to uh, life because I know that whatever happens in this life, God has me. Um, one of the best sort of analogies I've ever heard about this is, is an analogy of a, of a baby and a mother. Being Mother's Day, kind of appropriate. Um, if you've ever held a child and they got kind of scared and they, they grabbed onto you to kind of protect themselves, um, it's kind of silly, isn't it? As if the baby's strong enough to hold themselves up. As if the baby's strong enough to save themselves. Who's, whose power is really saving that child? Yours. Your arms. Your arms are the one holding the child. But the baby gets a little scared. Uh, or puts their arms out. Or just kind of freaks out a little bit. As if they can save themselves. You're the one with the power there. God holds us in that same way. We might, we might hold on to his shirt. But man, his arms are the ones that are really holding us. We might be holding on to his hand, but he's the one protecting us and walking us through everything. And so I guess really your job today and the challenge today is to hold his hand. You ever try to hold the hand of a squirmy kid? It's like trying to catch a chicken. It's, it's almost impossible. But when a child puts their hand up, it's one of my, one of my greatest joys as a dad is when my, my children will hold my hand. Well, they'll just 
put their hand in mine. And I've got mine over their hand. It's like a sign of protection that I have. I'm holding their hand. I tell my daughter, when you, I feel great when you hold my hand because I feel like I'm a prince. When I hold your hand, ah, Pastor Tony. Hold my hand, son. Or excuse me, hold my son's hand. I don't know English well. You know, make him hit himself. You know, arm wrestle him. Just hold his hand. When they don't want to hold your hand? You ever had those moments where your kids don't want to hold your hand? Ah, so you die a little bit inside. Ah, you used to be so little. At those times, I usually just pick up my kids. Because I can still do that. And so today, my, my encouragement to you, and I believe the encouragement through Habakkuk today, is for you to just put your hand out to the hand that's already outstretched to you. I don't think your hand has to go that far. I don't think it's about how, how long you can hold your hand up. It's just about taking the hand of the one who wants to lead you. He's going to lead you through some scary stuff. But when you've made the choice, when you have that resolve, you know that it will never be anything more than he can handle. So let's stand. All this is possible because of Jesus. All this is available to you because of what he's done for you. And if you have not given your life to Jesus today, even this is not available to you. Pastor Tony, is this an exclusive club? You know, actually, Christianity is an exclusive club. It Being a Christian is somebody who has placed all of their faith in what Jesus has done. Not in where they go on Sunday, not in how they grew up, not in what their parents decided to do. It's all about what you have decided to do. It's all about who you believe and who you have faith in and who you trust. And if today, if you have not given yourself entirely to Jesus, today is that day. If you are maybe a Christian in name only, you know, you call your, you check that box off when you do a survey or, or you're a Christian because, you know, you go to South Bay Chapel or because a lot of your friends are Christian or you listen to Newsboys CDs or something like that. That doesn't make you a Christian. I might make you religious, but that's not really the aim or the goal here today. Today we're looking for people who, who will jump off the cliff into the arms of Jesus. That That is faith. That is belief. That is being in Christ, as the Bible says. So I want to pray for that to, for you today. Let's pray. Jesus, life is hard. It is scary. I get, as a pastor... I get probably 20 prayer requests for every praise report. For every good thing that we want to celebrate, Lord, I get 20 more people who say, this is happening to me, my spouse, my children, my job, my investments, my wealth, my health. Everything's falling apart, Lord. And Lord, I just marvel because I look at them and think, I can't help them. I don't. I don't have the answers, but you are the answer. Father, I pray today that you would open our eyes through your Holy Spirit to who your son Jesus is. Not what the media tells us, not what tradition tells us, not what even people have told us, but what your word tells us about him. And your word tells us that he is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep who would rather die for his flock than to have them die insufficiently. 
I pray today, Lord, that you would open the eyes and hearts of your people, whether it's people who have just never lived for Christ, people who are Christians by name only, or even those who have been faithfully walking for you for longer than I've been alive, Lord. May you bless us each today, Lord, with that resolve to keep going because we are with you. Not because things are favorable, not because things feel good, but because we are with the God who created us, and you love us more than we can even fathom. And Lord, I'm praying now that, that these seeds that are being planted would bear great fruit. That, that, that as the week progresses, as the month goes on, as even as 2015 continues, that, that these things would start to bring life in our hearts. And that the landscape of life would look completely different because we were walking with the King, that we're walking with our Lord, that we're walking with our Savior. Lord, we love you. You are good and worthy to be praised. And no matter what the outcome of today's service is, I pray that your work would continue. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.